But what I want to do with you, and please at the end of this, come and pick up a piece of paper that I've got here, um, which is actually a piece of text, a piece of translated certain text, um, which is going to form the basis really of the, of the first few evenings anyway, um, whilst we're here, because I want to talk about the basic principles that underlie the whole practice of Mahamudra in the Tibetan tradition. Uh, one thing to make absolutely clear um, about a particular retreat is the practices and the techniques that we're going to use over this coming week are all Mahayana practices. They're derived from the Mahayana tradition. There is a whole lineage of teachers that extend right back into ancient India and probably these kind of techniques grew up as a response to the sort of things many of us tried to run away from, a kind of over-intellectualization. And particularly in Tibet, which is where these practices have now resided and have come to us through the Tibetan teachers who now live in India, they were taken up and they were mixed with various other practices coming down through China. So you've probably seen from the description that was in the in the Gaia booklet, uh, many of these practices look quite similar to what go on in Zen and Chan Buddhism as well. The irony is that these are called sudden approaches to enlightenment uh, or sudden approaches to awakening. Um, the irony perhaps is that there's a tremendous amount of discipline has to go into the suddenness behind it. Um, so it's not just kind of bizarre practices and bizarre behaviour, it's actually looking even more closely at our moral, ethical behaviour in day-to-day existence. Now something I always try to make clear at the beginning of retreats is actually, I think there's a wonderful word we have in English, this is practice. What you do on the cushion is simply practicing for going outside in the real world. Not to say this isn't the real world, but the world of the sort of ordinary commercial hubbub that most of us have to dwell in or certainly encounter, either through work or through just passing through cities and travelling and doing all the sorts of things we have to do. So it's very, very important that we see what we do here as a kind of laboratory experiment, in a way. Um, for taking it outside and actually engaging in day-to-day life with the sorts of awareness, the kinds of concentration perhaps that you can develop in a situation like this. A very good friend of mine many years ago who used to teach meditation in Canada used to have a wonderful um, experiment. He used to allow people to stay at the centre for fairly long periods of time and then he called them into his office for a kind of private interview. And he'd go something like this, he'd say, feeling calm, and the people would go, yeah. right, this is in a blissful situation, and hills above candy, you know, no running water, no electricity, just this beautiful animal sounds and mongoose running around and things like this. And he'd say, feeling calm, and they'd go, yeah. He'd say, go to candy then. <laughs> and he'd just send them out into, um, an ordinary, typical Asian town, which if any of you have been to Asia, is generally chaos, actually. Unmitigated chaos. And you'd send them down there and say, well, if you really got calm, you can cope with that. That's where it is, out there. 
That's where the practice is, day to day. So this is your experiment. This is a very privileged experiment as well. To be able to sit, to be able to walk, to be able to be in beautiful surroundings to do it. But the be all and end all of it is being out there in the world doing it as well. Just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit about the history and background of these practices, just so you know where it comes from. Mahamudra practice, of which this whole retreat is based on, is usually called the Great Symbol. Um, it's really translation, Mahamudra um, means the Great Symbol. The Great Symbol of Awakening. Now, I prefer the term awakening to enlightenment. Yeah, awakening is what it's about. Waking ourselves up. A Buddha is an awakened one, he's not an enlightened one. He's woken himself up to the way things really are. And in that sense, a Buddha is an exemplar for every one of us as to what could constitute being a real human being is about. He ceases to operate in a world, or in the world, through the, the trinity of greed, aversion and delusion. Now just think about that for a second. Just think of the radical change in being if we could actually operate in the world, wake up to the fact that a lot of the time we're operating through greed, aversion and delusion. So when the Buddha supposedly, or when he achieves nirvana, he ceases to operate in the world through those three things. He operates in their complete opposite. He operates through understanding, kindness and generosity in the world. So as you can see, they're polar opposites. The world that we are trapped into is generally called samsara. It means cyclical, going round in circles. The actual origins of the word just mean literally to go round in circles. And so we're all engaged in circular behaviour. We're not woken up in that sense. We're just engaging in habitual, repetitive habits a lot of the time. So the Buddhist path, and Mahamudra is no different, is about breaking the cycle. Breaking the cycle of repetition that we're engaging in. Cutting through to what is. Now, the what is, is the opposite to the fantasies, the fantasies that we often entertain, or we would like it to be otherwise. As Milarepa says, the great Tibetan yogi says, you know, the whole goal of practice, and particularly in Mahamudra, is to be happy with whatever presents itself to the mind. Whatever is out there in the world, it doesn't alter the balance of the mind. The mind remains happy, whatever presents itself. So it's quite a task that <laughs> you're engaging in here. Now the history of this practice, as I say, goes back to ancient India. It goes back probably to this dissatisfaction with what was happening to Buddhism in India at that period, which was great big monasteries with lots of monks studying, debating, writing often as well. Great senses of intellectual activity. But there was another movement, another current that wanted to break through 
to go back to the more engaged form of Buddhism, which was about, not just study, but about practice as well. So there was a kind of rejection of a lot of the intellectuality of Buddhist practice. And that finds its way into China, and it also finds its way eventually into Japan. And it comes up through India and down through China into Tibet. And you have two practices in the Tibet, in Tibet which look or appear to be quite similar. One which some of you might have heard of called Dzogchen, and another which is the Mahamudra practice. Now, to cover a long history, extremely short, two lineages of this practice have come down to us, and I'm going to teach you from one particular lineage, which is the Gelukpa lineage. The other is the Kagyu. They share the same teachers. Now, a lot of these practices have come down through teachers associated with the Dalai Lamas and the great founders of the Galuxa school in Tibet. Now, the Galuxa school was just a reform school. It took the practice of Tibet, the practice of Buddhism in Tibet at a particular period around the 15th century, the end of the 14th century, beginning of the 15th century, and reformed it and cleaned it up to get it back into some model that it would have looked like in India. Essential to this tradition was monastic celibacy. And they were the people who were in Tibet were responsible for the foundation of a huge, huge monastery, some of you, which you may have come across in, in looking at books about Tibet. Enormous places. I mean, not little small monasteries. 10,000 monks plus in one of them. So they're huge institutions. Now all of these institutions are founded on the Mahayana vision of Buddhism and it's important that we understand what that is because there's so much misinterpretation about what it is. Rather than opposing Mahayana to Theravada, although Theravada is one particular school, I generally oppose it to non-Mahayana forms of Buddhism. The Mahayana was a movement that started around well, it came into some kind of real fruition around about the 1st century, 2nd century AD, and grew from there. And it was about this particular vision, and this is important, because this is what, in some senses, we're all engaged in, if you're engaging in Mahayana practices. It's the vow to become a Buddha. Nothing short of that. But the Mahayana vision is vowing to become a Buddha for the benefit of all sentient creatures, for all sentient beings. So taking out our self-concern about our own awakening, in other words the centre of attention is not on my awakening to overcome my pain, my distress, my anxiety, my unsatisfactoriness, but to actually focus on the attention on the others, on others. So the motivation behind the Mahayana was much more to help others. The reason why to become a Buddha, well, in fact, is two and a half thousand years or something approaching that. Um, we're still, still talking about Buddhism and still helping people in terms of doing practices like meditation, for example. So, Buddhas have a real impact on the world. And that's effectively what the Mahayana said. So if you really want to have an impact and really want to help people, you become a Buddha. End of story. So, the vow here is to become a Buddha, to help all sentient beings. And that's the heart of the awakening that's within Mahamudra. 
to really, really want to become it, not just a kind of flaccid, oh, I think I might like to become a Buddha. <laughs> but you really want to become it, to actually attain that awakening, to go out and generally, you know, genuinely help others. Now, at the very heart of this is the arisal, and this is a piece of text you can pick up later on, at the heart of it is the arisal of something called bodhicitta, which is the awakening mind, or the mind directed towards awakening. What motivates that mind is karuna, or compassion, for others. This turning outwards to see the pain, the distress, the suffering of others and with the desire or the wish to genuinely help others. But prior to that, there has to be, and this is what I'm going to focus on this evening to talk about, really old-fashioned word, you're going to hate me for saying this, a really old-fashioned word called renunciation. You have to give up something. Now, I don't recommend that we all go and shave our heads and collect our begging bowls at the door. Uh, it's not that kind of renunciation that's aimed at. This is a reorientation of the mind. In other words, to give up something, to attain something which is really, really important. And so renunciation is the foundation movement. And so it's a renunciation of mind. It's not simply about giving away all your possessions, becoming a monk or nun, or that might be involved in tradition. And within Tibet it certainly would have been the case. But that's not really what it's about. Because there's wonderful little stories in Tibetan tradition about the man, for example, who gives away everything gives away all his wealth and the only things he's got is his robes and his begging bowl but he gets really angry when somebody takes his begging bowl <laughs> so the renunciation isn't there <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter about how much you've got or how little you've got it's the attachment to what you have and so renunciation ultimately is a renunciation of attachment a renunciation of clinging to certain things now Clinging can be all sorts of forms, can't it? The most obvious one that we think of, of course, is clinging to material things. Desire for material things. And wanting to hold on to them. It's really deep attachment. The word that's used in the original languages means something like holding on so tightly you can't let go. And that can be and this is going to widen it out for you, not just material things, but people. Ideas. Vocation. Anything, in fact, you can literally hold on to and build into as part of your identity. Other people give us senses of identity, and we cling to them for that. We make them objects for ourselves, often. We also cling sometimes, and particularly if you more intellectual then, we cling to ideas and opinions and thoughts that we have. Um, many an intellectual career has been founded on clinging to ideas, <laughs> clinging to particular things, not relinquishing them or being able to relinquish them. We cling to our vocation as well as giving us a sense of identity. Once when I was in South Africa, um, the person I was talking to once gave me a wonderful answer um, when I asked him what he did and it shows you a different attitude he said I play at being professor of linguistics <laughs> he's playing with it not deeply, deeply serious you know, 
notice how when we ask people, you know, one of the first things that, you know, when we contact people, and one of the things that possibly we first ask them is, what do you do? As if doing and being are somehow synonymous. The other one, of course, we do as well, it, um, certainly for ourselves often we do this, is we, we relate to the having side. There was a French existentialist called Gabriel Marcel who wrote a book called Having and Being, the two first verbs you learn when you learn any language, to have and to be. But unfortunately, the having often gets associated with the being. Now, I'll tell you something, a horrific thing I came across a couple of years ago, once in reading the newspaper, and it shows you how deeply, for some people, this is tragic, it can go. This was a man who had a car from new, polished it, looked after it, pristine condition, absolutely pristine condition, apparently. Uh, somebody came and stole it, and he committed suicide, and left a note, because the very centre had been taken out of his life, which was this valued possession. Now, that's a very extreme example, I know, but to greater or lesser extent, we all tend to do that. And so renunciation is about the quality of mind to relinquish. Not to not appreciate. That's not the issue in this. Yeah. We appreciate and we can value what we have, but still have an attitude which holds things, people, ideas, vocations, and everything in a much, much lighter fashion, in a much, much lighter way. So that we're not going to be deeply hurt, deeply wounded when something is taken away from us, as inevitably it will be. Because one of the first things, if any of you have studied any Buddhism to any depth, we have encountered, even on the most superficial level, there is such a thing as you notice called impermanence. One of the things in the world is impermanence. In fact, the only permanent thing in the world is impermanent. That's the only thing that's happening continuously. Different rates, some things change a lot quicker than others. Yeah, human beings and animals grow, mature, and expire relatively soon. We're great mountains, even some of the greatest human edifices which are created crumble at a different rate we can crumble quite quickly, <laughs> given ill health and everything else. And that wonderful advert that was done, I'm sure some of you might have seen, it was in a Buddhist magazine called Tricycle, about a year or so ago, probably a couple of years ago, I think, long ago. Um, which said, coming to you soon, it's like a film poster, coming to you soon, old age, sickness and death. Just to make it clear <laughs> what's happening. <laughs> So, that's at the heart of our experience, change. And if there's one thing that you probably recognise, if you've been engaged in change, particularly when it's being foisted on you, is you don't like it terribly much. We are very, very resistant to changes. Yeah. When people we're close to change, partners, loved ones and that, we get upset about it. 
when we lose things, break things, we get extremely upset, we get angry. Now, as I often make clear, you know, impermanence isn't an intellectual thing. It doesn't take a great deal of understanding to comprehend that there is such a thing as impermanence, but we don't live it. Just moving from the Tibetan context to the Japanese context, the great Japanese Zen master, Dogen, said that awakening was simply living impermanent. That's all it was. Just being able to live impermanent. We understand impermanence, but we don't act as if it's there. So in other words, it's made no emotional impact on us. It hasn't moved downward into the very heart of our being. And this is often what's engaged in Mahamudra, is actually trying to make the movement into making it not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge. And some of the Tibetan teachers I've been around used to be very fond of saying we've got to learn to think with the heart. And this is not a radical idea within Buddhism because the very word citta, which is usually translated as mind, often as consciousness, citta also means heart as well. So it's heart-mind. Now, particularly in the West, we tend to be a lot of head, not a lot of heart. And it's awakening this heart, awakening this genuine emotional approach. Now, the piece of text I'm going to give you later on is by a great thinker called Tsongkhapa, who lived from 1357 to 1419. He was the founder of the whole school, known as the School. And he said, even with so-called intellectual pieces of knowledge, he says, if you hear something or read something and it doesn't make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up within Buddhist thought, you haven't understood it. You know that emotional response you get when you really understand something, it really affects you and you've got to get this prickly feeling all over you and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, that's what he's meaning. You haven't understood it, it hasn't really become heartfelt knowledge until that stage. And so he puts at the very beginning of this small text and he's very much within the Mahamudra tradition, he writes texts on Mahamudra as well. He puts at the beginning of this renunciation. Right at the very beginning. Let me read you a passage from it. I will explain according to my ability, he says, the essential meanings of the teachings of the Buddhas, the path that has been praised by the Buddhas, and the gateway of the fortunate yearning for liberation. I'll say a little bit about that in a minute. Do not cling, and I'm moving ahead here, do not cling to the joys of samsara, because they're not really joys. Not in the true sense of the word. Those with bodies, I think we all have those, yes, just check out. (laughs) We've all got bodies. Those with bodies, it says, crave for existence. Thus, from the beginning, seek renunciation. Without renunciation, there is no way to still our attraction to the pleasures of samsara. This is one we might know in the West, 
although it's a lot more difficult even in Tibet at that time. Leisure and opportunity are difficult to find. We have no time to waste. Reverse attraction for this life. Repeatedly think of the effects of karma and the pain of samsara. Now, that's put in a very idiom of you know, an ancient culture. We're talking here, that's written in the 15th century. So it's a fairly old text. It's a very condensed text as well. But what he's trying to make clear is we have to renounce, and again this is an orientation of the mind, we have to renounce a kind of misplaced search. Is that we're often our very own worst enemies. Not bad, no implication of that, but we're our own very worst enemies. In that we search for happiness, something the Dalai Lama continually says, Again and again, every talk he says here, all beings look for happiness and peace and contentment. All beings. And from the ant to the elephant via the human being. All look for some kind of happiness and contentment. Only we're not terribly good at it. And particularly human beings. Let's just focus on that one. We're not very good at doing it. Because we misplace our search we look for happiness in the very things which can't deliver it. They might deliver pleasure, no doubt about that. They might deliver a degree of joy, and often that's associated with it. So it's not kind of, let's all be Buddhists and go around with a miserable face. Or, you know, let's not look at these teachings and think that we have to be kind of really grumpy all the time. It's not about that, it's about misplacing our search for this one desired thing that we really want, some kind of happiness. Because we search for it in things, for example, which are not going to deliver at all. We search for you know, permanence in the impermanent. We look for stability. We look for you know, that stable sense of identity, perhaps, in ourselves and others and things around us and everything else, and they all lack it. They do nasty things on us, like get broken, fall apart, lost, or if it's people, they do something which people do get very angry about, die on them. People get very angry sometimes about the death of a loved one. Not just sad, but angry about it. Now this is not to say again, and I want to qualify this, in our ordinary daily life we do not appreciate things or people or anything like that. It's not a question of cold detachment. It's not a stepping back. It's more of a movement forward because you come into the correct understanding and appreciation of what is and the person. So we're often searching for it in, uh, in this misplaced area. We often are looking for it, and it just actually gives us more pain. Now the word that's used often is translated again and again, and some of you I know will have heard me say this before, is this word dukkha in, in Pali and Sanskrit. Dukkha is usually translated as suffering in popular texts and books. But it's much, much more pervasive than that. It's, it's there every 
aspects of our lives. And this is in a sense, whether it's Mahamudra, whether it's Zen, whether it's Theravadan, whether it's anything else, this is the one thing that's being thought to be overcome in Buddhist practice, is Dukkha. In fact, the Buddha says, I only teach two things. I teach Dukkha and the overcoming of Dukkha. Nothing else. You want to ask questions about whether there's a God or whether there's a Creator or where did it all come from? Forget it. It's not tied to the task. It's the task that's important. The task of overcoming Dukkha. Now Dukkha is, if you like, the added on mental component to the things that happen in life. It's not unrealistic to say when we have got rid of dukkha, we get rid of physical pain. Or that we suddenly, miraculously, get rid of old age, sickness and death. <laughs> that would be completely and utterly unrealistic. Even the Buddha grows old, eventually gets ill, and in the Theravada tradition, dies. Too. But, this dukkha, which is at the heart of our samsaric existence, our kind of sick, cyclical, painful, unsatisfactory ways of being in the world, doesn't have to be there. In the Mahayana traditions, of which this Tibetan form is a part, samsara and nirvana are one. They are not two separate places. This is Nirvana, by the way. And you don't know it. <laughs> because we're behaving in this world with samsaric attitudes. Greed, aversion, and delusion. If I could be in this world with a completely transformed mind, then this world would be Nirvana. But even that is wrong, because I'd be actually Nirvanaing walking around the world nirvanaing. Because all it means is being in a totally different way of being. And all Buddhist practice, Mahamudra aims directly at it. Aims at transforming <coughs> your mind. It aims at total mental transformation. It's a radical change of attitude. So when we talk about renunciation, we're talking about a radical change of attitude, of renouncing, looking for pleasures and joys in a samsaric way. Now the very opposite of generosity, for example, which is supposedly displayed by the Buddha throughout the sutras and the suttas of the Pali Canon and the sutras of the Mahayana tradition, the generosity that's displayed by him is the absolute antidote to the greed that doesn't want to relinquish, that holds on. You know, we have stories, don't we, even in the Western tradition of you know, the ill effects of greed. You know, I can think of two examples, Scrooge and Silas Marner. <laughs> you know, wonderful examples of karma in the Buddhist sense as well. Yeah. Scrooge, even in his Christmas carol story, gets a chance to counter-effect karma <laughs> by dealing with it. Yeah. 
obviating the effects of it. So renunciation is a complete and utter mental transformation, that it means relinquishment. It means a letting go. You know, this word, as I say, which means upadana, which is usually used in the text, the hold on, the clinging, this is the letting go. Kind of, sort of intense about life, let's just relax, let go, and die to die. You know, why worry? Because as you know, these mental forms, again, worry, fear, anxiety, are deeply, deeply embedded forms of clinging. You've had those worries and fears that keep you awake at night, send you in a kind of panic state, and you just go round and round and round and round, holding on to them. This is about relinquishment. One of the phrases the Dalai Lama is very fond of, of course, is, you know, if you can do something about it, why worry? If you can't do anything about it, why worry? <laughs> yeah, it's a completely different attitude. So, relinquishment is at the very beginning of the path. And so, whether we're Buddhist, whether we're non-Buddhist, whether we're interested, it becomes a way of living, a way of transforming your mind. You don't have to have labels, by the way. They're not important. But this attitude of mind is important because the very opposite is going to cause us distress and pain. And when I said the pervasiveness of Dukkha, and the reason why I don't like suffering is because suffering sounds like at the extreme end of the Richter scale. It's the earthquakes that erupt in our lives from time to time, often in terms of great illness or tragedy or sickness and the things that we can't control. But, as I've said in a number of times in teaching here, you know, as it was described to me once by one of the Dalai Lama's teachers, he said, Dukkha isn't like being stabbed. It's like rubbing your arm slowly against a brick wall because it's not very painful to start off with, is it? <laughs> but, you know, rubbing your arm against the brick wall, if you keep on doing it, gets more and more painful. It's the repetition. And remember going back to what I said about the word sangsara. Sangsara is repetition. It's the repeating again and again and again and again. I joke about being born again and again and again and again Buddhist. <laughs> because that's what happens. It's just being reborn continuously into habit. Often, have you noticed this sometimes? I, mean, I don't know if it happened to you, but I, know, I certainly noticed it must happen to me. When people challenge a habit that you have, you get really upset about it. Because habit is almost part of our identity, the way we see ourselves. Yeah. And we're very loath to let go of it. Yeah. People point it out to us. So, actually, in this particular instance, what causes us the problem is the habit that we have, the repetitiveness of it. That rubbing your arm against a brick wall, which, you know, if you're younger, often doesn't cause you much of a problem, doesn't cause you much distress. But as you get older, 
and the more it continues, the more painful it becomes. So, if you've ever had that feeling of deja vu about making mistakes now that perhaps you were making ten years ago, or five minutes ago, or five years ago, you probably are. <laughs> Not exactly the same mistakes, but because they're generated by habits of mind, they will have a remarkable similar feeling tone to them. And the question is, do you want to let go of them or not? And that's the relinquishment. Relinquishing the habits. Because you're relinquishing the known. So I'm not joking about this. This is the scary part about it. Part of it. Is that you're having to relinquish the known. And it's easier to reside, as I often say, you know, it's far easier to reside with the pain I know. Uh, because often that pain itself um, can be part of your identity. You know, I'm suffering in this particular way, or distressed in this particular way, or I'm anxious or fearful. And it's kind of built into my sense of being, so much so that to relinquish it, there would be a great big you know, depression-shaped hole or anxiety-shaped hole. Now, again, going back to the simplicity of the traditions which Mahamudra goes out of, is the idea that the Buddha says, for example, you know, cease to do evil. But that's not good enough. Learn to do good. In other words, you have to fill the hole that's left by the not doing or the not clinging to whatever you're relinquishing. So if it is a habit, you have to develop good habits. And we talk in Buddhism, particularly within all the traditions, about wholesome forms of behaviour and unwholesome forms of behaviour. Forms of behaviour which are going to generate good states of mind and make you behave well in the world and ones which are not. And there's a point here, really, which is why we're aiming at mental capital. Why we actually sit on cushions. Why we do walking meditation. Why we do all sorts of often weird things that people do at centres like this and other places is to transform that mind. To actually transform our way of being in the world. To come into a new relationship with this world that we inhabit and the people who inhabit it with us. And it's that radical transformation. Same world, different mind. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. So it's actually losing your mind, basically. Yeah, or losing the, the mind which creates the problem. And it's very clear that dukkha is the mental additive component. Yeah. Do you want your mind with or without additive? <laughs> yeah. The additive here is dukkha, which adds the pain into existence. Now, even using the word pain makes it sound too grandiose. I mean, when I, when I read these books and I see these popular commentaries on Buddhism and that, and, and it talks about the suffering, you know, and the suffering of life and the suffering of this world, it always seems to me too grandiose because actually Dukkha means not getting the chocolate out of the box that you wanted because somebody else has eaten it. <laughs> That's Dukkha. Yeah. Perhaps being 
here. Would you like to be somewhere else? That's Dukkha. The pain in my knee when I sit and meditate, that's Dukkha. But also the great tragedies, you know, that would be the kind of real heavy end of the Richter scale. That's Dukkha, too. So it's from these minutiae of our day-to-day experiences. And in a real way, Dukkha characterises the daily grind that we go through. The sort of, what I call moderate unhappiness that most of us experience. Yeah. By the way, that's the way Freud thought he was curing people, by the way, to turn them into being moderately unhappy, <laughs> rather than being extremely unhappy through their neurosis. So it's just dealing with this daily, daily grind. And notice how automatic it is that we come into certain states of mind almost like that automatically, just happens. We find ourselves again in those states of mind, again and again and again and again. That's rebirth, again and again and again and again. Being reborn in those states of mind. So we have to affect change, and you have to want to affect change. And why am I going on about this in this particular way? Well, yeah, start in the way the Buddha did, give you a diagnosis. This is the diagnosis of the condition. At least, when you're informed of the condition, you have a choice. You can either give up the habits which perpetuate that condition, or you can maintain yourself within it. But you at least have the choice. You can either take the regimen to health, or you can remain where you are, with its consequences. It's equally so when you go to just an ordinary GP or a doctor who gives you advice and says you ought to do this and stop this and you might have to relinquish that. But again, see how deeply ingrained often we're resistant even to the changes that are often suggested to us even just in terms of ordinary health, let alone mental health. From a Buddhist perspective, I'm going to put it really in a, in a very forceful way, from a Buddhist perspective, from the perspective of these traditions, of which the Tibetan tradition and the Mahamudra practice is one, we are all mentally unhealthy. All of us. There are shades and degrees of mental ill health. From neurosis to psychosis. And we're somewhere in between. Generally. But the question you always have to ask about, in terms of really putting it back onto you, the question you really have to ask, each one, each one of us has to ask ourselves, is do you want to be different? Do you actually want to change? Do you have the courage to enter into that change? Because you're entering into an unknown. So easy just to fall back into the familiar. One of the other characterisations, I'm painting a really negative picture on that, I'll have to try and cheer you up at the end of this. <laughs> the, one of the other things that characterises our normal behaviour is not only the falling back in habit patterns, but the falling itself is motivated by a mental state. One that I certainly know I possess, it's called laziness. Yeah. Have you ever noticed how you always want to put off till tomorrow what you can actually do today? 
A friend of mine who's an academic had a wonderful thing to do. He said every time he has to write a paper, he says it's marvellous how tidy the house looks, how well the gardens look after. <laughs> now you can transpose that into your own life and think that's the thing you ought to be doing and you go off and do everything else other than the thing you ought to be doing. And so there's laziness required. You know, that's actually there at the heart of a lot of this. And that's why we slip and that's why we fall. Because we're not attentive. We're lazy. We fall back into the familiar. Now, here's perhaps the, the, the cheerier news about all this. There's this word in Buddhism we almost use, um, it becomes I mean, a bit jargonistic actually. The word is generally, and I'm sure those of you who might have been on retreats here before, will know it mindfulness. I prefer personally the word awareness but, you know, in this context. But, this word in its original language, I'm not going to give you all the uh, original terms, but the word in the original language also means memory, remembering. And it's about remembering where you are. That's the quality of attention. And if you think about the word even in English, one again is one of the few English words you can play with in this context, is remembering is to bring back together from a scattered, fragmented, diffuse sense into a much more concentrated sense. Now if our mind, as is stated again and again within the Mahamudra tradition, is monkey mind, swinging from branch to branch, leaping around all over the place, then there has to be awareness or remembering to bring us back. Now, the way that we will start to remember is by initially doing some concentration exercises to bring us back. Only when we're concentrated can we then start to explore. So we're coming back to renunciation again. We've got to want to renounce our scatteredness as well, our fragmentation. We've got to want to remember You've got to want to be aware and to bring that attentiveness into daily life, moment to moment, in the washing up, not just sitting on the cushion. You've got to renounce, too, this is a big one, the whole thing of, I like doing this and I just like doing it. And that's often associated with the mundane. It's not you know, often associated with other areas of our lives, but particularly with the mundane it's associated. You know, I divide up life into what? Likes and dislikes. Particularly with the two poles of our experience, the two, the two much more strongly toned forms of our experience. Okay, on the one hand, there is the, the like, the things I like doing, what do I do? Well, I repeat them. Keep trying to repeat them. I want more of them. We hold on to them, too. We cling after them. We go to actually, go actively searching for them, don't we? <laughs> you know, oh, there's a nice little pleasure. I think I'll go after that one again. <laughs> Let's repeat it. But one thing is you've probably found out you can't repeat pleasure, too. There's no such thing as a perfect repetition of anything. 
which is definitely unveiled. On the other hand, on the other side of the juggling act, we're kind of pushing it away. You know, don't come near me, don't want any of that. Often our fears and our angers and our aggressions are all associated with that side. In fact, all of those psychological states, fear and loathing and dislike, all stem from the aversion, or even, if one puts it extremely strongly, hatred that one can sometimes feel. So fear arises out of that. Anger arises out of that, which is why anger, according to the Buddha, is never justified. Because it arises out of genuine aversion and hatred for something. So if we're pushing away and we're clinging on to, we're kind of doing this lovely way of dividing up the world. Now, just in terms of our ordinary, daily, day-to-day grind, our lives, we're doing that continuously because there'll be the tasks I like doing, and I'll make sure I do them. And there'll be all those things that you put off. Washing up, bath, ironing, cleaning. And so in Buddhist stories, and again Tibetan traditions full of stories, the people who attain awakening by doing really mundane tasks. You know, there's one particular monk who's forced to sweep the courtyard every day. That's his task. And he attains awakening through sweeping. <laughs> Just simply that. And so awakening is not in this kind of super mundane metaphysical ideas of sitting here on my cushion with a blissed out expression on my face. It's actually in the mundane, the minutiae of our daily, day to day life, our experience. And so, again, renunciation. Now I'm talking about things at this stage possibly we can't do, but at least we have to be aware of. Eventually we're going to have to renounce this division. This way of dividing up the world, which neatly compartmentalizes it for us. Now the one thing we know is that the world is going to throw things continuously at us. That's what Milosa says, with being happy-minded no matter what happens, no matter what appears. To us. And so dukkha is that mentally added component that brings the unsatisfaction. We place it there. It's not things are inherently bad, unsatisfactory. We add the unsatisfaction to them. And this is very made very clear. And this is one I'm really familiar with, you know, I like to tell people because it makes it quite clear. There's a little story of the Buddha walking along the road and he steps on a shard of stone which penetrates his foot. And it says it causes an immense pain but no dukkha. So dukkha is mental, it's not physical. In other words, we all of us will probably have things. Most probably have things. We all of us will certainly die. But there doesn't have to be Dukkha involved in it. At all. And that's the mental transformation that is meant to be affected, along with a lot of other things as well. But that's one of the main ones. The relinquishment of that mental component that we add. So here's your mind without additives. 
that we can actually be in this world not experiencing dukkha, when we're not experiencing it in the Mahayana tradition, this world and our passage through it becomes nirvana, nirvana. So as you can see, it's an utterly transformed world, but the world remains the same in that transformation. So the slings and arrows and outrageous fortune of Hamlet will still be there. We are not going to stop natural disasters and things will continue in the world which are going to cause horrific pain and distress to others. Now, I'm going to try and finish off in a second. I'll give you a few minutes to ask some questions if you want to. Bear in mind these are not just me talking at you. Please engage with what's being said, even if it's to disagree, and you don't mind. To bring it back into this tradition and this particular practice that we'll be doing, it aims at penetrating to the very quality of mind, which is the unbookered mind. The basic idea, and I'll give you this very quickly, I'll talk about it in more detail as we go over the week. But the basic idea within this tradition is that by very nature your mind is undefiled. By very nature. If a good thought comes into your mind, or a bad thought comes into your mind, it makes no difference to the very pure quality of the mind. Neither of them defile or taint this mirror-like quality that's the actual phrase that's used the mirror-like quality of the mind just as a mirror will reflect whatever is placed in front of it but as soon as you remove it will remain completely clear again so the mind is the same nature so whatever passes through the mind in terms of the thought processes in this tradition, that is slightly different from some of the past and our traditions, hasn't got to be dealt with. Because you actually the aim is to identify with the ground of awareness which even allows good or bad thoughts to be seen at all. So you're going, if you like, one stage lower to the very ground nature of the mind the mind as it is in itself, as opposed to having to look at and transform the very thought processes themselves. And this particular practice often aims at saying, well, the thoughts are thoughts. If one is identifying with the ground, it doesn't matter what thoughts are arising. Because you won't act on them anyway. And so one identifies with this mirror-like, completely undefiled quality of the mind. Now hopefully by the end of the week, I'm not going to claim that you're going to go away with awakening, <laughs> but you might be able to just get a glimpse of what I'm talking about here. But we start off with a very basic thing. First of all, learning to concentrate, then learning to find the balance of the mind, because this is really important, and we'll do a meditation which is called 
um, holding the mind as if spinning a thread. That's the way it's said in Tibetan. Holding the mind as if spinning a thread. What we mean by this is, if you ever seen people in traditional cultures trying to spin threads, then if it's done too loosely, it gets all tangled up. If it's too much tension on it, it will snap the thread. And so, in other words, this is a metaphor for getting the right degree of relaxation and the right degree of tension within the mind. Because as we all know, there has to be tension there for anything to operate. Even the mind has to have a degree, perhaps not the right word exactly, but a degree of tension, just like a muscle. It's too flaccid, it can't operate. Yet, if it's too tense, it can't operate. Either. There has to be the right balance between the two. And so we're doing some of that, getting the balance. But I'm not going to jump ahead and tell you what else we're going to do. I'll shut up now. <laughs> Please, if there are any questions about anything we're going to do or comment, but don't have any questions, by the way. You can just be comment. Or. Yeah, interesting comment, actually. Um, in some ways, I would say possibly it is. Yeah, because a lot of the practices that you would, for say, for example, if you were going through a proper you know, traditional Vipassana training, starting off with samatha, with calming the mind, before you even begin to go into your investigation in, in Vipassana, depending on what form of Vipassana, by the way, you're doing, because there's many, many different forms. Um, it follows the same kind of pattern. But here, you're seeing um, something you do see in Vipassana, actually, but the one move perhaps that isn't there within some form of traditional Vipassana is actually trying to get down to the very ground awareness. What you do in traditional Vipassana is often see, for example, the impermanence of thought. Well, that's certainly the case within Mahamudra. You're looking at the, the, the thought's impermanence. What kind of feeling tones it has? What qualities those thoughts have? Now, in this, you take it one move further, and in some forms of Vipassana, particularly in those that practice more choiceless awareness forms of Vipassana, not the noting and the strict counting and all sorts of other stuff that they do within Burmese tradition, for example. In choiceless awareness, that would be quite close to some Mahamudra practices. So yes, I would agree with what you're saying, basically. Well, allowing anything to arise and, and, and noting without interference with it. So you allow it to arise. You're not trying to control, you're not trying to uh, manipulate in any form, you're not even trying to note that it's really strong. I mean, for example, in some of the Burmese Vipassana traditions, you would note automatically what tone that has. Is it pleasant, is it unpleasant, or is it neutral? You're not doing that even here. You just note it. And so if it's a sensation in the knee, you note that. If it's a sound outside, you note that. If it's a thought in the mind, which is an unpleasant thought, or pleasant thought, it doesn't matter. You just note it. Don't relinquish it, don't hold on to it. And the phrase that's often used with these traditions, you'll probably hear me saying it over these, this week, is, you know, allow it to arise and allow it to pass away. So all you're doing is allowing this 
thought process to arise and pass away. Now it's really important in Mahamudra because the thoughts are not the mind. They're just adventitious. That's just what arises. Yeah, so, in this tradition, it's not thinking that's the problem, but it's our identification with the thinking that's the problem. Angry thoughts are not problematic as long as one doesn't act on them by attaching oneself to them. Equally so, yeah. good thoughts not acting upon are not good thoughts. The other way, right? we're looking at it as well. And so one identifies with the pure ground of awareness. Now, what is said, I'm making some big claims for it, what's said on the pure ground of awareness is the genuine spontaneity and freedom of mind. Everything else is conditioned and controlled. Any of the mental phenomena is conditioned of the normal furniture of the mind that's arising and passing away and arising and passing away. Because every thought has to have a conditioning previous thought. Every thought arises in that way. Now, could trace them back long enough, and psychoanalysis does this, because you find out what happened to you in your childhood or something like that. But conditions particular ways of thinking. So, one doesn't have to go through this kind of Buddhist mental psychoanalysis to eradicate this. You just allow them to be, by not identifying with them. So it becomes a bit like childhood. Well, do you think, um, that yeah, it is. It is a bearing witness. Um, normally, we're not bearing witness because we're caught up with it, yeah, and that happens automatically, doesn't it? You just you get sucked into it, that's right. And because it's a conditioned process, um, it's difficult to relinquish that being sucked in. Now, what in a sense is being affected in this, and what you're calling change of witness, is a change of attention. You're moving your attention somewhere else. And only by moving your attention somewhere else can you see these as for what they are. Can you see the thought processes for literally what they are, and not necessarily get caught up with them. But hopefully it'll become clearer as we go, because I'll give you instruction on each so it is a bearing witness but it's a bearing witness and then identifying with that which allows the witnessing to take place in the first place Being. It's the process itself. So when 
in the heart sutra, which is what you're quoting before the Venture Venture is before, what we're saying is that the two are not separate. That's all. That there is no intrinsic quality to either. And so, in true understanding of this, in, in Mahamudra tradition, the understanding of Shunita of emptiness, by the way, for those who are not familiar with this term, the understanding of emptiness is absolutely fundamental for understanding that you know, the forms that the mind possesses are not intrinsic forms. And the true nature of the mind itself is empty of inherent existence or intrinsic existence. That is its spontaneous quality. Now, I, perhaps I'll put this in much simpler terms. I kind of use technical jargon here, and uh, they probably left some people behind. The mind can either, and this is a rule, I'll put it in a feeling way. The mind can either possess a space-like, open quality, or it can be extremely closed in in terms of traits or disposition, which I think are me. So, if I'm putting it again in our very basic, ordinary ways of life, habits of mind, we don't simply see as habits of mind, do we? So those thoughts which I have about, say about me, for example, about the sort of person I have, might be just an emotional feeling, not even just a thought, a conscious thought. But it's grounded in, this is really the way I am. This is really the way I am. Now, as you can see, that affects the closure. Now, I'll joke about it. If it's something really silly, like, um, I hate peas. And so what really characterises me as a person is I'm a pea hater. (laughs) And anybody says, why don't you like peas? I get really upset about it. (laughs) Yeah, you should like peas, they're good for you. Now, I get really upset about it. Now, I'm joking about this, but you can see this in terms of dispositions which are much more serious ways that we have of seeing ourselves. In other words, we've closed the mind in. Because it's actually full of opinions and habits and things that we think we are. Whereas, the opposite is the case. Again, using an example out of Western thought, Jean-Paul Sartre says, consciousness is nothing, which is why we're all so frightened. Yeah, it's a nothing. It only arises, and it's very close to the Buddhist understanding, it only arises in dependence on an object. And so, consciousness is whatever object it takes. Now, here's all this stuff in the world that's all kind of looking solid and having identities mm. and everything else, and here we are, you know, kind of answers the question you want to be, is, well, I want to be anything. <laughs> anything that presents itself, really. Now, I'm joking about this again, but this is kind of very similar to the Buddhist idea that actually the need, that it doesn't have an intrinsic quality to it, the mind. It's this kind of stainless awareness, and it will be whatever is presented to it. Now, if we only think of ourselves in terms of the presentations that keep being made, (laughs) be they qualities that we think about ourselves or qualities that we think about other people, or about the world in general, but it remains on the mere, what the Greeks used to call doxa, mere opinion. We haven't genuinely seen it. And so this is, again, relinquishment. Relinquishment of ideas you even have about yourself. 
has a scary one, <laughs> often, because there are things about ourselves are very, very deeply rooted, very, very deeply rooted, about what we can do, about what we can't do, what we're capable of. As you know, I mean, even in ordinary life, people who are encouraged to do things they think they can't do and find that they can do, and have this tremendous sense of liberation. And I'm using that in a sort of deliberate way to say liberate. They feel liberated in a certain way in being able to do it, because they now have a, a more open quality of mind. Now, I think if you could do that totally, that would be a kind of, in the Dzogchen Mahamudra tradition, that would be a kind of Buddha mind. Because it would be spontaneous, it would be free, it would do what was necessary. The actual word that's used in these traditions for karuna, for compassion, is actually responsiveness, that the mind responds, because this ground of awareness is free. It's free to respond. None of us are free to respond. We're Pavlov's dogs. You know? Ring our bells and there we are salivating. For me, desire creates productivity. So if I lose these desires, where does productivity come from? Productivity, in what sense are you using the word productivity? Creating? Yeah, creating something an action of any sort. It's the desire to do that action. I think we'd use the word I mean, desire, for example, is often used in Buddhism. Um, and I'd use it in a slightly different way from the word that I'm really being attacking, which is the word craving. For example, in the Buddhist path, in different forms, you can say, for example, the desire for liberation is a necessary desire the desire to be liberated from dukkha. And that's a creative path. There's nothing wrong with the desire as long as it's channeled in the right direction. Now, craving is different here. Now, I don't want to give you, get into technicalities of the original words that you Craving leads to clinging. Craving also, in the word, really literally means an endless thirst that can't be quenched. As you can see, it's just put it in those terms. Endless thirst that can't be quenched. Well, that means that it's going to go on and on and on. And no object will satisfy it. At all. Whether it be an intellectual object, whether it be a person, or whether it be things in the material world, nothing's going to satisfy it. And even the bits that I do get, because I misidentify them, as I was saying earlier on, um, you cling to them, you hold on to them. And that's extreme forms of man committing suicide. He's clinging desperately to something he thinks gives him identity. And that becomes the opposite of creativity, because actually it's not creative <laughs> at all. It's the closure of creativity, of living creatively. Because it can only be channeled in directions to try and serve, it's like, a, it's like a junkie trying to serve a need. You know, you've got to keep feeding the habit in some way. And so it's very much like, and, and I tend to use this as an analogy because it's terribly sad and it's tragic when you see people with alcohol and drug problems and everything else, but in a sense we're all addicted. We're all in sensual addiction. So 
Oh, of course they do. <laughs> Might be getting a good one square meal a day. <laughs> no, I mean, what it, what it, it, the thing is, is you can, it can be displaced onto any object. So when we talk about monks and nuns in these traditions, they're strivers as much as anybody else. They just have a better, well, I say better opportunity. That's not always the case. They're putting themselves in a situation where they can maximise the possibility of dealing with it. But, having lived in monasteries and seen what that goes on, you know, monks are, monks are human beings, by the way. <laughs> as much as anything else, and they still have their problems. You know, it might be you know, that um, story, you know, the one clinging to his begging bowl. But they cling to all kinds of things. Might be clinging, and this is the one that the Buddha often puts in front of his monks in, in the stories associated with the formation of the rules, is that it might be clinging to the rules. <laughs> Would it be true to say that <coughs> to crave liberation would be again an unhelpful attitude? It would be an unhelpful attitude, yeah. But it's not, it doesn't have quite the force of craving, say, sensuality, or any of the other forms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I It is. Uh, I mean, it is. It is a very good comment, actually, because it, 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 it is the discovery that you are nothing other than the ground of awareness. That's all. That's a phenomenal move if one can make it. Um, I often think of, of um, a line in some of Rilke's poetry where he says, you know, um, basically he says the world needs you. Yeah, we all. The mountain, the tree, the sound, the violin, it all needs you. Terribly affirmative idea. Because you are that ground of awareness that lets things be visible, audible, tangible in the first place. Any sentient creature. So it's a terribly affirming process, and kind of negative state of being hemmed in tightly by one trying to shore up your identity by your habits and your beliefs and opinions and everything else to this kind of open bearing witness and that, that integration almost a feeling that comes I think in terms of you know, great artists and I was very struck by I mean, something that Cezanne said when he was painting Montaigne Victoire you know, Mountain in the South France again and again and again and again, painted loads of it, about 30 times or something. He said, Sometimes when I was looking at the mountain, I found the mountain was looking at me. <laughs> you know, there's that kind of merging of the horizons of visibility. Now, it's not to attribute up the eyes to mountains, but you know, in other words, both inhabit a field of, of visibility, allowing to be seen.
why you said that um, prayers or adoration doesn't have to go forth to other kinds of craving. It's not craving, well, not craving in the same sense. I think you see, this is not sort of like, this is used occasionally, but it's not the sort of language that's used in Buddhist text. Craving is there to identify, you know, when we talk about craving, we're identifying a problem, basically. Whereas liberation is the overcoming of the problem. But if you make liberation into an object? If you make it into an object, then you, yeah, if it's a thing. You see, this is the reason why one has to hear all these terms in terms of processes, not in terms of things. Yeah. Seeing liberation as a process, not the gaining of a thing. Yeah. So in other words, as I was saying to you earlier on, it's the Buddha, when he... Yeah, standard language is used in English translations, when the Buddha attains nirvana. Well, actually, he doesn't attain nirvana, he's nirvana. He's going through this process of being in the world in a completely different way. Um, and Buddhism in general, um, just for the, those of you who ever read any of this material and text, is always speaking in terms of processes, and all the words in the original languages are verbs. They're not nouns. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to hear that. Because the word liberation doesn't really exist. There's synonyms for that, but again, it's, 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 always, it's always made into a verb. Yeah, they're liberating. Yeah. As an ING no, of Fun? No, you couldn't crave it. No, you couldn't crave it in that sense, no. Yeah. It is a problem. It's a problem that comes through in translation, but I don't want to kind of bang on about that. Um, but it does, if you can just hear that, and um, if you can just bear that in mind sometimes when you hear even some of the statements I'll make, we're really talking about processes. Yeah, the Buddha might have been one of the big ones, and I'll mention this probably few nights or so. One of the big ones that's often mentioned is the Buddha interested in you know, the self or no self as it's usually translated. The Buddha's not interested in either whether there's a self or there isn't a self. What he's interested in is what this process called a self is. You know, and how we misidentify it and turn it into a self. That's what he's interested in. And that's liberation in the understanding of the way it operates rather than fixing, you know, in, in fixing into the ontological questions of whether it exists or whether it doesn't exist. not interested in that. <laughs> Isn't the idea of the understanding of self one of the factors that comes through the press to self? Yeah, it is. But it's the understanding of not self. What is not self? That's what he's saying. Not, not, I mean, I know it's only a slight difference. It's only one letter, isn't it? It's a T. One T from no to not. But it makes all the difference. Because when the Buddha says, for example, form is not self. Feeling is not self. Yeah. Discrimination is not self, and so on and so forth. He's trying to indicate none of my isolators can together even begin to form a self. And if we do cling to any one of those selves as being self, then form, feeling, discrimination, all the way up to consciousness become dukkha for us. Yet if we can understand it as a kind of functioning which is then um, overseen by a linguistic word which is called self, then we understand it correctly. We don't hold it in the same way. We don't grasp after it, in other words. 
So the Buddha's movement, and within this tradition as well, the movement is always to lessen the grasping after, the craving for, the weaners of the addiction. I thought to draw it to a close and have a good you know, ten minutes or so just sitting quietly <laughs> to calm the mind before bed. Now, I'm going to just